Hello and welcome to episode 103 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, one and only Shane Beeps. <laughs> it's me, Shane Beeps, on the line from Denver, Colorado. Where it's snowing, Dave, did you want to know? <laughs> not everyone has to do musicals at the holidays time. I just want to be clear. Not every property suddenly becomes a musical property. Are we clear well, on that? Because I'm not doing a solo <laughs> for you. Yes, you are. You're singing a song. You're singing Magic the Gathering all night long. No, 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 no. <laughs> 103 okay, episodes, we finally got Dave to sing. I thought, I thought uh, uh, Maria and Megan over at formerly Magic the Amateuring. I, for, I actually forgot the new name of the yeah. podcast. Good luck, high five. Good luck, high five. They, 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 have, they have semi-frequent musical episodes, so we, we, can't, we can't possibly even imitate that. No. Stan, it's good to see you. Dave, it's good to see you. You too. Let's, let's do this. Let's roll, roll that, that beautiful, beautiful bean, bean footage. footage. Yep. <laughs> On this week's episode, we're getting better at historic. We're qualifying for tournaments. We're crushing events. Shane's playing in his car on cross-country road trips. We're talking about the metagame, insights from recent tournaments, and our own experiences testing out some new-to-us decks that we've had our eyes on. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to the new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation this week. We got another Michael S., the third Michael S. that I'm aware of. We also got another Joe, though this is a Joe S. No relation. No relation to Joe or the Michaels. As well as a, a third patron, Elusive Fate. Ooh. I know what you did last summer. That's what that says to me. They finally found out what I did last summer. Of course, a special shout out to Darth Dog for increasing their support tier. Thank you so much for going up a tier in your Patreon membership. We also got some new reviews from Yay2727 and JJ Streezy. Oh, man, I love new reviews. I love new review week when like people come in and they're like, oh, I love this podcast. You guys are the best. And I'm like, oh, yeah, just just shoot that. Just let me swallow that p- pill of, of inflated ego. Are those prescription only? or it's, it's, huh. No, it's over the counter. But you have to show your ID when you buy them. Like The pharmacist keeps track of how many they sell every year so that you don't make counterfeit decks out of it. We should probably do some plugs, too. There's a bunch of ways to support the show. We even have a new vanity URL for one of these ways to support the show. So if you go over to untapped.thedivedown.com, it'll redirect you over to our untapped.gg support page, our affiliate (laughs) link. They call it a subdomain in the industry. So that's what we did. Yeah, so if you want to, if you play Magic Arena and you like tracking your stats, if you um, want to see like how you're doing with certain decks, about how you're doing over the season, over multiple months, and the entire like kind of uh, the, the sets and whatnot, you can download that, and you should be using that because it's awesome, and it's fun to see like what you're doing. And also, if you download it for the first time, you don't have to spend anything. You don't have to sign up for any service. You don't have to do anything crazy. All you got to do is download it, and we get a little bit of a kickback. Uh, we all like and use untapped so uh we're you know telling you to do something that we think is worthwhile so check it out it's a good way to help us out without even spending anything and if you want to support us while you're playing magic on magic online uh check out manatraders.com to rent uh cards for the decks that you want to play uh is a great service we've used it for a long time 
on Moto for playing Modern. And if you use code the dive down, all one word, when you sign up, you will get 15% off your first three months of subscription. It's manatraders.com. Whenever we talk about that, I always like go to Mana Traders and I'm like, do I, do I still have 75 cards checked out like for the past week or something like that? But And then uh, finally, the uh, most direct way to support us is with our Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash the dive down. Uh, a buck a week is the the basic citizenship level gets you into the super mm-hmm. secret Slack server, which is honestly, that's, that's all you really need. I mean, the other stuff's cool. But the, the Slack is growing regularly. Uh, it's awesome. Everyone that comes in has been like an awesome addition. You know what I mean? Like I love when we get new people because they're always great to have in the community. And like they add something new. They add like a new perspective. I love having new voices. I love having new people who are like, oh, I'm, I'm playing this. I'm like, well, I didn't even know this was a deck. This is sweet. So it's just, it's uh, definitely my favorite place to talk about magic. The only place I talk about magic, honestly. Yeah. And you know, it's not just people talking about modern as it turns out, there's actually a thriving EDH community within the dive down community as well, where they, you know, it's one of the the busiest channels on our Slack server. So if you want to come and talk about just all the different ways you like to play magic, even if you discovered us because of modern or because of historic or pioneer or, or whatever, um, you know, there's just a lot of really enthusiastic magic fans on our server. Do you guys moderate that EDH channel? Because I never go there. And for, for all I know, it is oh, no. lawless. That's, that's the wild west. I really like to pop in there about, I check it probably once a day. I pop in just to like, see what's going on. And it is an incredible different language. <laughs> like, I feel like I've stepped into a completely different game. Most of the time when I pop there, I'm like, Oh, are those magic cards? Are those still magic cards? Apparently, Judge Jack is in there. I trust him oh, yeah. to, to moderate and Joe, everything. Of course. Yes, you do. I don't trust Joe to moderate anything. <laughs> Hilarious. All right. So, yeah, the Slack is awesome. It's the best way to get into our weekly FMs. We're now doing them basically every week. We have a bunch of awesome TOs. We got Ben, we got Bob, we got Trevor. We got a historic FM this Friday. We just did a modern FM this past Friday. Oftentimes, lists from our tournaments end up on MTG Goldfish, but that's that's pretty cool. It's kind of like IMDb, but for Magic players. <laughs> Am I wrong? How often? How often do you check IMDb for myself all the time? Oh my gosh! Every time I'm watching anything, <laughs> yeah. Stan's like, what, "Where are my producer credits?" All right, that was fun. Stan, not not to rush us, but I believe I believe you're at the news desk this week. That's right, and we have a lot to talk about because. We're going to cover eight events featuring 760 results, and it's just a single weekend worth of SEG Tour satellite tournaments. So we really wanted to build off of the 100 decks that we dived into for our our hardest episode, so we're going to dive into 760 historic decks today. You strap in, Twitch chat. We're we're doing it. Yeah, Dave. Oil the bell. Oh, yeah. This bell is ready to go. WD-40. That's not a lubricant, Stan. WD-40 is not a lubricant? No, it's a cleaner. Unreal. Earth shattered. Earth shattered. All right. So for those of you who don't know or haven't heard, satellites are open events, meaning that anyone can participate, and they take place on select Fridays and Saturdays, hosted by Star City Games. And you participate in these satellite events to earn an invitation to compete in a 5K 
championship qualifier tournament that always happens this Sunday immediately after the satellites. So we had some tournaments on Friday and Saturday of this last weekend, and then there's another one that following Sunday. Depending on how you finish, you can also get buys in the qualifiers, and then you can even qualify for a a big Caldheim qualifier weekend if you participate in, in this season's SCG satellite tournaments. I gotta say, when I found out how much it costs to play in these satellites, I was sort of kicking myself for not participating in them sooner. There's six rounds of Swiss, and they cost $6 to enter. That's a deal. It is a deal. There is a cost. You have to only play on Arena. They're either standard or historic events. They don't do Moto. They don't do spell table cards. It's just Arena tournaments. But anyone with a four and two record or better qualifies for the Sunday event. And for this episode, we looked at the eight historic satellite events that took place on the 11th and 12th of December. And then rather than going through each tournament one by one, because that would take forever, we collected all their data into a single beautiful pivot table. And we'll discuss the decks present from the event, some overall metagame representation from the weekend. I just opened the pivot table and it is stunning. Stan, I just want to commend you on your work this week. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Just to kick us off, let's talk really quick about the handful of decks that actually went undefeated in these eight events since turnout was so high in some cases multiple decks multiple decks were able to go 6-0 in the course of a single satellite tournament because some of these tournaments had over 100 players wow that's incredible that's a ton of people it's huge i think arena is popping wow so i'll I'll run through these pretty quickly and then we can discuss satellite one sultai midrange and blue green kinnon combo I believe that's uh, that's Simic, right? Blue green, yeah. Stan. Mm-hmm. I'll call it Simic Kinnon from now on. Please do. Satellite two, mono red aggro and rack sack went undefeated. Satellite three, mono red aggro and rack sack went undefeated again. Satellite four, Sultai midrange, only undefeated deck. Satellite five, Simic Kinnon was the only undefeated deck. Satellite six, Goblins, was the only undefeated deck. On the seventh night. Of satellite Sultime midrange and azorius control went undefeated and then on the eighth and final tournament two copies of rack sack so in total we're looking at four rack sacks three sultai two cannon two mono red one goblins and one azorius control wow I, I, I imagine we'll talk about this a little bit later but the cannon deck is that like the paradox engine one we talked about like two weeks ago yes it's not a new cannon build no okay sweet it's a good amount of decks it's kind of like what i expect right like, besides the lack of goblins, I kind of wonder what's going on with that. Like, um, I mean, the goblins is only statistically a little bit unfavored versus, like, the sack decks. It's, like, favored versus Saltai. I think it's interesting that it does have a bad win rating. It's mono red. Mm. And in this more open environment where people are limited by their arena budgets a little bit, like, me, I mean, mono red's not cheap, there's a good amount of mythics in mono red, but I mean, maybe like the people who really like just playing the fastest and like e- sort of easiest to build aggro deck on, they're, they're bringing out mono red and it has a little bit of a positive matchup against goblins. So maybe that kept it down a little bit. Dave, <laughs> any reactions? No, I, I think this is kind of what I would expect. There's nothing new in here. There's other, I mean, the Kinnon deck is pretty new in a lot of ways, so we'll talk about that in a little bit, but yeah, this is this is the historic metagame, y'all. Just to clarify, these are only decks that went 6-0, but if we look at the total count, 760 decks, here's a, a quick breakdown of how that pie chart looks. The most represented deck, 249 copies, Uro midrange. 
Whoa. 33% of the, how many decks did you say? 700? 760 in total. Wow. Wow. Okay. People love that mid-range. God, they love that Uro, yeah. In second place in popularity was Goblins. 110 copies, um, 14.6%. Yeah, and those... It still did bring the Goblins. Sorry to interrupt, but those two decks are basically basically 50%, give or take. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I thought, I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but like we, we, we've sort of just said that the, the three... Well, it's been kind of insinuated or kind of believed that the three pillars are like, what, Simic goblins and like rack sack or sure. Sack, right but it's interesting what you're going to talk about in the next few slots that i think is like oh is this the, the shifting meta or is this kind of like the big brain tournament meta that's that's coming up next so i think what you're alluding to shane is that the third most popular deck 60 copies and 7.9 percent azorius control yeah i mean you come off hot off a tournament win at the zendikar rising champs and people are going to be like oh is there, is there a legitimate control deck I could be playing? Must play Azorius Control. And we'll talk about this more later, but I definitely saw a good amount of Azorius Control in the open. Up next, which I guess is actually bigger than Azorius Control, is Sacrifice. Because if you bucket Jund and Rakdos, you're looking at 68 copies. So that's what, like 10%? 9, 9%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, then that's still following kind of the what Shane said, we thought the three pillars of the format were in a lot of ways. It's interesting to me that the Jund versus Rakdos discussion is continuing on the sacrifice deck. And I'll have more to talk about later as this is a deck that I played a lot over the last couple of weeks, but um, it's, it's interesting how similar and how different these two decks are because like I have the Rakdos sacrifice deck. And if I wanted to switch over to Jund, it would cost me another 25 <laughs> 25 rare tickets or something rare wild or something like that because of the mana base and to get a hold of enough uh, collected companies. But that's really the only difference between the two decks in a lot of ways. Up next, to my surprise, 51 copies is Simic Kinnon. That's a huge rise. I mean, like what, there was like just a small handful of this uh, Paradox Engine? Is that the, that the card? That is the um, card. Yeah, so that, just a handful at the championship. People... I think started talking about it or already iterating on it, you know, and uh, a much larger percentage of the field is this Simic Kinnon combo deck. Should we talk about it really quick? Yeah, it's time. I mean, so we, we had a quick, we had a quick discussion of this in the cool decks Inc. section a couple of weeks ago. And the, well, it's just generally that paradox engine untaps your, your non land mana sources when you cast a spell it untaps all well of course it, it'd be hard for them to write a card that said non-land mana sources so it untaps all non-land permanents when you cast a spell and so like you can you can basically then get your like kinnons and mana elves and chromatic your uh, mox ambers and whatnot all on tap right right mindstone yeah it's mindstone it's it's all kinds of different uh kinds of ways to generate mana without being a land and so what you try to do is get paradox engine out you want emery out you want cannon out and then you can use emery over and over again to cast some kind of payoff from your graveyard so you can cast chromatic sphere you know i played in one match where they cast aether spell bomb over and over and over again to just pick up all my permanents and then went on their merry way so there's there's a bunch of different things that you can do but the key is that 
Emery also untaps when you cast a spell when Paradox Engine is out, and then you can cast a sacrificable artifacts card from your graveyard, and you just loop it like that. Mm-hmm. It's similar to what you used to try to do with Mishra's Bauble with Emery sometimes, but um, you know, different cards, similar idea. Yeah, powerful strategy. I'm sure it'll continue to be iterated upon. Have you guys played against this deck very much? Yeah, I've played about it, uh, against it a lot. I've seen versions that play like power stone shard i think that's the card from dominaria where it taps for colorless equal to how many copies of power stone shard you have and then it plays Aetherflux reservoir so you're essentially just going off to an Aetherflux win uh, some of these newer simican inversions i think are cutting the reservoir to do more karn stuff yeah i've definitely seen karn as a hallmark of the deck and something that you you have to watch out for because the thing that i forgot is that they would put a paradox engine in their sideboard to fetch with karn and so i kind of felt like i was in the clear one game and then was not i got one last pov here which are the decks that went five one or better and in some cases they reflect the overall metagame spread because Euro midrange is again the most represented deck in this bucket 28 copies went five one or better 33.7% of this winner's bracket. Mm-hmm. Same with goblins, uh, t- 14.5%, 12 copies. So it only went down like 0.1%. Nice clean conversion, 33 to like 33.7. Interesting. Sacrifice went up. It looks like to me that sacrifice went from what we said, 9% here to having 13 decks that went 5-1 or better. If you count John and Rakdos together, for a grand total of 16.6%. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me here was actually the presence, or emergence rather, of the nine lives combo deck. Four copies went 5-1 or better for just under 5%, which is basically the same as Junsac, Azorius Aggro, and, and just under Azorius Control. I have not played against that deck at all, have you? Oh, yes. And it is annoying. Oh, jeez. It works with Solemnity, right? Correct, yeah. So nine lives basically prevents all damage dealt to you. Every time a source would deal damage to you, you put a counter on it. And when it gets nine counters, you remove it and you lose the game. Solemnity is an enchantment that says you can't, permanence you control can't get counters. So you essentially lock your opponent out from killing you. That's one way to win. Wow. Does it feel legit when you play against it? Like, does it feel like it has a real game to be able to get to its combo pieces or is it just trying to draw a plus b combo cards and kind of like buy time other than that yeah i think it's mostly buying time and it has some points where it's super vulnerable because if you even bounce the nine lives they lose because nine lives you die if it leaves the battlefield and i gotta say there was one time i totally whiffed where i had a literal into i had into the royal in my hand and they had nine lives out and i just didn't read the card and afterwards i was like oh i could have won in the most stylish way possible. But yeah, what's interesting to me ultimately is that we see two combo-ish decks kind of emerge a little bit in prominence over the course of the weekend in this one tournament series, be it Nine Lives and these Simic Kinnon decks. I think think these might be a hint to what's to come. Maybe if people keep shaving Thoughtseizes just because they're playing Sacrifice or they're playing these aggro decks and... I kind of think Simic Uro is like the only Thoughtseize deck in Historic right now, or the main Thoughtseize deck in Historic, at least. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, Rakdos is running is running Thoughtseize, too. It's just in the board. Rakdos Sacrifice? Yeah, yeah. You don't, I mean, amazingly, there's not room to play 
you don't you don't need thought season in the main deck in Rakdos, it seems like. But um worth noting that nine lives has hexproof, by the way. Oh, so I didn't whiff. Yeah, you didn't you didn't whiff anyway. Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank the Godfather. Hat hat tip to some some friendly Twitch Twitch chats from from the Mickeys. So I gotta say, when we look at this five one or better meta game, it doesn't look terrible to me. We have several aggro strategies, several control strategies, multiple combo decks, no shortage of mid-range. Um, and there is like some really fun, spicy one or two of Rakdos Lurus. Bant Spirits was among the high-performing decks. Hmm. How? How? <laughs> they have Coco and a bunch of good spirits. That's awesome. I really, really want to play that deck. All right. Shane, what do you think about this metagame? I... I don't like that there's no gruel, but I do like the fact that, you know, the the mono red aggro decks are showing up and they're they're doing fairly decently. Like we went from even even outperformed kind of like the field to go five one or better with like a doubled up that uh percentage almost. Uh but yeah, I mean I mean I have a lot to say about kind of the Uro quote unquote mid range style of decks uh this episode. That's kind of like my my major piece is is talking about how this deck works and what cards go into it and stuff like that. And also just kind of my thoughts on the performance of the deck uh against the meta as well. So it's like you'll hear that later. But I think that one of the things I have been hearing uh on the podcast I've been focusing on historic lately, which I love. Um, I love, you know, this this new kind of attention being paid to the non-rotating format on arena. And some people have been saying that, you know, the, the championship might've said might've brought something new, right? Like, Hey, the championship didn't bring any new decks. Uh, this idea that there may be undiscovered things in historic is probably a pipe dream. Uh, adhere to the good decks or, you know, don't play on the ladder type thing. I mean, that's, that's much more harsh than people were actually saying. Right. But I think you know we immediately are seeing the success of this uh, Simic engine deck with with Kinnan and whatnot. I think people are already iterating on that. I think the fact that Azorius Control is back in the meta is probably a good thing. It's a good, good thing to have a legitimate control deck. The Nine Lives combo is doing well. I think that Historic still is in flux, and Watsi is going to keep it in flux in the near future as we get more anthologies as we get more remastered sets as we get more normal sets i think that that's one thing i think is exciting about uh historic right now is that it's actually a more aggressive pace of change than any other format we can have because we're we're going backwards and forwards Mm -hmm. at the same time whoa it's like we're it's like we're moving without moving man (laughs) i just watched tenet it's uh it's quite a bit like that we're going to change. I'm going to send a note to try to get them to change the format name from historic to tenant. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Perfect. Do I have time for a brief installment of cool deck sync? I think we do. Let's I, do it. Whoa, man. Aggro. Yeah. Well, these just for us to fit the content in, we have to be decisive, Shane. So let's do this. Let's, let's do these first two, Stan. All right. Is it aggro piloted by Mariano Mercado finished three, three and satellite three. It kind of looks like Is It Prowess from Modern. You have 16 creatures. Eight of them are one mana wizards, four sprite dragon, and four stormwing entity, two royal scions, and then 23 instants and sorceries. My only take here there is no way to play your stormwing entity on turn two in the main deck. You could play a Tormod's Crypt and play a stormwing entity from there if you, or you you wanted to. Um, 
the no no it's not an instant or sorcery so you can't do that um but and there's also no way to protect your storming entity for free so it does make me feel like there's a good chance that storming entity is quite a bit like less powerful in this kind of build of course it's not modern but it takes away a lot of the attraction for the card for me so on the one hand i'm kind of hopeful that a deck like this could be good but i'm i'm a little skeptical of it now on the other hand there's no lightning bolt in this format but um there's a lot of fatal push there's a lot of um eliminate actually and this card is really good against both of those yeah and then there's some heartless act which this card would not be good against so you know maybe there's some space for for this card to be resilient to the types of removal that people just play in the format what did you think stan i love spells i love is it spells i i don't think royal science is actually that great in historic to be honest i think it's a little slow for not enough payoff just because so many of these creatures are easy to kill and royal scions even though in modern sometimes that ultimate can be a win condition because you know in modern you can play bolts and here is it doesn't have access to that good of a burn spell i don't think this is the is it deck that i'm looking for but if it starts to do consistently better you bet your butt i'm gonna play it i think i have all these cards including the storm wings yeah i i would really like an excuse to buy storm wings maybe i will hopefully i will Next deck, Sultai Explorer, piloted by Marcos Acosta, finished 4-2 in Satellite 8. 3 Uro, 4 Krasis, 4 Nissa. You think this is Sultai Midrange, but wait, what's this? 4 Jade Light Ranger, 4 Wild Growth Walker, and 4 Merfolk Branch Walker. So basically cutting back on things like Extinction Event and, and Growth Spiral for some targeted removal. Even has a single copy of Command the Dreadhorde which is a very funny way to close a game after you've been exploring every turn and gaining life off your wild growth walkers. I don't like this deck. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't like, I don't, it looks like a mess. I just, I just don't see what this is doing. Like, I just don't see what this is doing. Like, here's what I'll say. I, I one quick response. Cause although I don't think I've played against this exact list, I have occasionally been paired up against explore decks, like the old standard versions with better mana and Wild Growth Walker is a pain in the tuchus. I mean, it also just eats a Fatal Push. You know what I mean? Like, But who's playing Fatal Push? <laughs> 35% of the meta. And who else? And no yeah, one else. Not a single person. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean it's, I just, worth, it's worth noting that, that Wild Growth Walker is not good against the decks that play Fatal Push. You know what I mean? So, like, they don't even care. So, I don't think that you're that if this goes up against a regular Soul Tide, they're going to bother to kill the wild growth walker until it gets giant this this card has been problematic for me when i've played like aggro kind of decks for sure oh yeah like this this thing is like the you this is a you must have like a lightning strike or a, you know wizard's lightning or some kind of like targeted removal or else you you will lose um or some kind of bounce spell if you're super lucky but i mean there's just a lot of i mean this deck went for too right i mean that's pretty sweet but there's a lot of decisions here like this is clearly a slightly kind of like a ramp deck, but doesn't have any growth spiral. And you know, like it, it's like leaning on Tamiyo, which I think is like really interesting. Like, okay, you're filling your graveyard, but what else are you really doing? I guess it's like the plus is okay. The minus is okay. But is that worth two cards? Like Vraska Golgari queen is fine here. Like you don't really have a lot of straight permanence to sack off the plus. 
which I find interesting. Like, is it just really leaning on like controlling until you command the Dreadhorde type thing? There's just a lot going on here that I don't know how it fits together into a cohesive deck. I'm not disagreeing. I will say that it's it's random iterations like this that kind of help challenge this notion that if you want to engage with the ladder, you only have to stick to tier one. And the fact that someone can show up to an open and go for two, literally qualify for like the Sunday tournament with this explore pile with good Sultai cards. At least there's some evidence there that like good standard decks that exist on arena from yesteryear might still be able to hold up with some minor more contemporary upgrades. And I like that. If if true, I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I agree with you, Stan, in, in that capacity, which is like, it's good that people are still doing new things and winning with it. And I think that's a, a feature of historic because, you know, the card pool is not that big. So you still have a lot of room for, you know, a lot, there's a lot of good cards in the format and people have been kind of focusing on the decks that people know, but there's a lot of opportunity out there for, tweaking and tinkering all right so that's cool decks inc we're not out of the breakdown just yet uh i'm getting reports that dave dave's on the ground from a from a separate tournament (laughs) there was another tournament dave are you there i'm here was there another tournament there was this weekend and so i I think it's it's worth talking for a minute about the other tournament that has happened this weekend which is the first arena open for historic i believe it was the first one for historic uh that is not true it's not true. No, that's a lie. It's... All right. Well, the first one to me. <laughs> yeah. New to you. Let's, let's say that. So there was a uh, historic arena open this weekend, and um, it was announced a few, a little wise back, a little way back. For those who aren't familiar, the opens are a kind of different take on a high level tournament that kind of only arena can do. So the, the thing about the MTG melee tournaments that people do is that they run them mostly as like conventional tournaments and they do like round matching and things like that. You go to melee to see who your matchup's supposed to be. You go back and check in with them. It's all like kosher with arena, but it is like a normal tournament. It's synchronous. You play at the same time. The opens are set up specifically to be kind of a similar matchmaking experience to what the rest of arena is like. And so it's a highish stakes tournament on arena that uses the asynchronous kind of matching that arena does to let you spend one day qualifying for a day two and then play day two playing for real cash. And so, you know, if you haven't done this before, just so you know, when you do day one of the open, first off, it's $20 to get into the tournament. Basically it's 4,000 gems. Ooh, it's a lot less. It's a lot more expensive than the SCGs, which is $20 basically. Yeah. It's a, it's around 20 bucks at the cheapest, at the cheapest you can spend is $20. Yes. But in day one of the open, you, get to choose if you want to play best of one and try to go seven and two or better to qualify, or you can play best of three and go four O and qualify for day two. Now, if you play in the best of three event on day one, you get better prizes. If you play in the best of two event, you get worse prizes, but either way, you still get a qualifier for the same pool on day two. And that's all best of three. So if you win, get a four O and best of three, you get 5,000 gems back and a shot at day two. If you get a win in best of one, you get 2K in gems back and a, and a shot at day two. So you actually like lose gems if you qualify for day two on the best of one bracket. Classic. But it's easier to do it. Right, because losses are more forgiving, basically. Yeah. And in another twist, you can try to qualify as many times as you want to. 
with this. So it's basically like a poker tournament with rebuy. Oh yeah. And so you can just pop in, you can take a shot at it. You can change decks after that. If you, if you don't make it and try again and try again, the thing that's interesting about these are the thing that I think is most publicized about these is that you play for real cash on day two, even in a, in a uh, asynchronous way. So if you go six, two on day two, you get, uh, you know, you want to go six, two or better. Basically you get to play until you have two losses in day two. If you go six, two, you get $1,000 in cash. If you go seven one, you get two thousand dollars in cash. Ooh, United States dollars. Yeah, and I mean, is that tax free? Obvious, not in gems, right? In real money, I'm sure it is not tax free, and it's not in gems. You're right; it's just in real in real money. Um, I think it's pretty interesting. You know, I wanted to try a, a higher level tournament uh, last week. I didn't have time, or like, you know, it's really hard for me to do the like synchronous tournament at this point so something like the open is perfect for me to like pop in play some matches leave come back all that kind of stuff works great for for my schedule and so i wanted to give it a try and so i was working on a deck all last week for the tournament like i said i was working on rack sack and i just didn't really feel like i was ready to run it out in a big tournament yet so i just on saturday night after we got the kids down having a cocktail with the wife i was like you know what i'm just gonna fire up uh, and try to qualify for for day one or for day two with uh, blue white auras. And so I lost my first match and I was like, ah, maybe I made a mistake. But then I kind of like got it together and ended up going uh, seven and two to qualify for, for day two um, with a little bit of a twist on a best of one auras deck that I had kind of tweaked the some of the conclusions I had about the deck for the last time we played with a, a listener and uh whose name was, who gave me a bunch of good tips. His name was Drew D. I want to say thank you for giving me some tips on Twitter uh, about the last time I talked about auras. Now, I didn't take all of Drew's advice, but I took I took a lot of it under consideration. And then I also took some tips from longtime friends of the show, uh, Jay Seeds, who is uh, someone that Shane and I grew up with that I used to play Magic with, and he actually went mythic with blue-white auras on Saturday. What? And I did so, not know this. Yeah, and so he and I were texting on Saturday before I hopped into the queue for the open. So I was getting some of his thoughts on like w- the way that his build was working uh, before I went in with that. So we'll throw a couple of lists into the. I don't want to take too much longer on this, but basically, I beat goblins three times. Three times I beat goblins <laughs> in, in qualifying. Pretty. It actually was felt like a pretty good matchup at this point. Uh, I beat Mono White white Life Game. I beat a Red-Green Landfall Cavalier of Thorns deck. I beat a Mono Red Aggro deck, and I beat a Blue-Green Paradox deck. A little bit of a blur. That last one I know was an Uro deck and I think was Paradox. Uh, I ended up losing to a Grixis Control deck and a Colorless Ramp deck, which I think is another deck we should start keeping an eye on uh, eventually here. But, you know, it was really good. I mean, I played... You know, Auras is a deck that can snowball really fast. If people don't have all their interaction in, you can get going really fast. In particular, it seemed like Goblin decks weren't running uh, Goblin Gem Razor in the main, and that's really difficult because they can just kill your threat quite often with that card. Um, you know, I had to do normal kind of Aura stuff. I had to work out blocks, when to commit, when not to. I um, I luckily didn't face any Raksak decks because Raksak versus Auras is heavily, heavily favored for Raksak in my mind. Um, but 
couple of other things that really saved me. You know, I ended up playing switching from Cartouche of Knowledge back to Staggering Insights, which I think is really, really good at the two drop. And then putting Arcane Flight back in at the one drop slot to give stuff flying and cutting down on things like Karametra's Blessing and Sentinel's Eyes. I didn't have any Heliod's punishments anymore. I really was just kind of like all in on trying to make my threats as efficient as possible. Um, thought that was really interesting. I ran one spicy Shadow Spear in the main as a reusable kind of evasion to get the trample off of it or life gain if I needed it. That was from uh, JC's gave me that idea. But um, it's pretty costly, so I'm not sure whether I would do it again, but it definitely worked a couple of times, so it's something that I would keep on the on the map for sure. So anyway, I went 7-2. I queued for day two. Yeah. Yeah, which was like, okay, now that I did that, I was like, how am I going to play this tournament? Because <laughs> I have small children all day. And, um, and more importantly, I want to hear, how do they deliver the funds? Is it is it direct deposit? Well, unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't win any funds in, in day two, so I only went. I only went two two. But one thing to keep in mind, if you play one of these, is that it, you are constrained on the time that you can be around for day two. So you can sign up as early as six a.m. Pacific time to start playing matches, but it ends at five p.m. Pacific time. So it's eleven hours that it's open for you to get in your matches that you needed you to play. And so for me, that's in all time that my children are awake. And so I had to figure out, like, how can I sneak in some matches? And so I just kind of did it while I was watching watching them. At one point, I beat, like, blue-white control when my kids were fighting in the back <laughs> background and stuff. And then, like, they actually took a nap. And then I had to, like, I played a couple. I actually won matches when they were awake and lost matches when they were sleeping, which seems, like, really counterintuitive. But it was all good. It was a lot of fun. I managed to make 2,000 gems out of the whole thing at, at going 2-2. And then... um that was that was kind of it. It was fun. I was glad that I that I did it. I definitely would play these again, even though they are pricey. I don't think I'm the person who's going to queue multiple times into day one, but I think for trying to like have the experience of a Grand Prix from your from your home, it's it's not bad. Yeah, I think the fact that you can pay for these events with gems or gold is a really good incentive to hoard gold. Yeah, and I, what's what's the gold cost? Like twenty k or something. Twenty thousand. It's a lot of gold. It's still, I mean, it's still ostensibly free to play, which is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I have a bad habit of sometimes getting daily deal cosmetics or sleeves when it's like, hey, I play Lightning Strike. I should get this full art. I deserve it. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe that's a mistake. Now, I do have something that I have to talk about really quickly that was unpleasant with this, which is I don't know if people were watching on Twitter, but there were a bunch of people tweeting screen grabs of an error happening to them in the tournament where either their deck disappeared or their hand size was set to zero after they came off of sideboarding. So I actually lost a match in, in day two where I lost game two narrowly came back or came, lost game one narrowly came back after sideboarding for game two. And there was nothing happening on the battlefield. I didn't have a, I didn't have a deck. My opponent didn't have a deck. There wasn't anything going on. So I logged out of the client. And when I came back in, they had skipped my turn twice and had me keep a, a one lander. I actually won this game somehow. <laughs> my, man. I, my opponent took two extra turns and I kept a one lander. Uh, but game three, when I started game three, that's when I got the error that people were really tweeting about. That was like, why is my opponent's life at zero? And I have no library and it's making me discard my hand after my first turn, my opponent's at negative four and nothing's happening. So I had to like, I actually logged out, logged back in and it skipped me, skipped two turns for me as a result of, of that. And then I had a normal game, which I barely lost. <laughs> 
somehow. But um, it, I actually had a pretty good experience filing a ticket for them. So I, I got pretty tilted when I was like describing this experience to people in the Slack channel. And I was like, what are they going to do? And so I like stopped for a minute. And I filed a ticket and they removed the loss from me within like hmm. that within like 10 or 15 minutes. They set my record back to no losses. Interesting. So while that was super bad, the customer service was pretty good. So just keep that in mind when you're playing. Like when stuff goes bad, the TOs will, will help you out. Sweet. Hey, so, congrats on day two. Thanks. Now two of my co-hosts have done that, and I still have not. I, I already had a day two, the, a, a paper day two pre- previously. <laughs> a goal to set for Stanislav for 2021. Should we take a quick break and then uh, return with some live down content? Let's do it. I think that's a good idea. Stay with us. And we're back. So I got to say, the Dive Down co-hosts, we've kind of been falling in love with Magic Arena. And I think, agree or disagree, but in some, if not all cases, the shortcomings of the formats or the economy on Magic Arena is made up for the fact that it's such an easy and fun and engaging client to play Magic on. Definitely. It's super easy. It's just it's it's so much faster. I my my like time to play a, a match is you know super efficient. Um, when I'm in a pinch, I'm just like eh, I should bust out some dailies. I'm just like let's play some best of one red wizards and have some fun. It's like you know you can do a lot of different stuff with it. Yeah, it's super helpful to me. Like I was talking about with the the previous conversation about the tournament that I day to that Stan's never done, and I uh, it's it's all about the asynchronous thing for me that makes it really helpful like even in tournaments like that they figured out a way to make it possible for me to check in and check out which is nice you know i mean i love magic online and and modern but it's nice to not have to sit down and have to play a four-round prelim to be able to have like high-level competition and as a result you know we've been playing a lot of arena just out of our sheer curiosity and interest and in some cases picking up new decks to get better at this metagame explore the format um, and, you know, hopefully be better content creators. But at the same time, we had this week, not a ton of news, uh, no great dive deck dive targets to discuss. So we figured, why don't we just show up and talk about the decks we've been playing for our own sheer enjoyment? Yeah, and also because we're, we're testing some of the more popular decks some of the more powerful decks and we wanted to be able to do not exactly a sleeve believe heave because these are all decks that are are proven and legitimate but more kind of like here's how these decks play kind of like a mini deck dive across three plus different decks for you to learn from uh, for us to explain like kind of how they feel in the format and how sort of historic power level cards may differ in the both the cards themselves and the deck construction expectations versus something like modern so I gotta I gotta make a confession here. That whole time that Dave was giving his tournament report, where he customer serviced his way into day two, I was just sitting here thinking, when is Shane gonna talk about Saltai Midrange? Like this is why I showed up on Monday. I think I'll talk about it right now, Stanislav. Um, you know, Midrange is my one of my old nemeses, <laughs> nemesises. Like I just can't avoid the siren's call of this deck, and like and. It's probably because I play like so many aggressive decks and then they beat me. And then I'm like, 
these decks just always have to win. I gotta, I can, I gotta play this deck. And this is like always like a terrible idea. It's always a fool's errand to try to play the deck that you think just wins all the time. And you're sadly disappointed. Uh huh. <laughs> Stan, do you remember a couple weeks ago when I was talking about a new button that Shane might be making pretty soon? I'm starting to get some button buttony vibes. Yeah, sh- here. Mid range lives. Quote Shane beeps. I'm I'm sensing more mid-range died in my hands. Quote Shane beeps. But let's let's see where this goes. Honestly, I mean a, a little bit of a tease. I don't think this deck's mid-range, but we'll talk about why that is. Okay. I've built and played mid-range in a lot of formats, like Obzon and Constandard, Obzon and Jund and Modern. Even like you could ostensibly call like the collected company value town sort of creature decks mid-range until they really became outclassed in Modern and. Until recently, you really want to think about the color blue being part of like the powerhouse mid-range deck, and that's I think mostly because blue was operating on a different axis that different didn't like mesh well with what mid-range decks really are, or at least were like trying to do, which is disrupt the board, present efficient threats, disrupt the hand, remove those threats from the board that actually get through, and then just generate more value per card then the opponent is really able to do and then win that long game. And that's been the domain of colors like black for efficient removal, green for the efficient beaters, and then frequently red for kind of both, I guess. Like, you know, maybe some gruel cards, maybe some removal. Mm-hmm. And there's a recent printing of a couple cards that began that shift from mid-range, you know, of mid-range into blue. And first was Oko which was this outrageously efficient and powerful like threat eradicator and creator. And of course, I got quickly banned out of the formats that we talk about. And then Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, which is a card that does a number of things that pretty much any mid-range or controlling deck wants to be doing. Gaining life, drawing cards, ramping your mana, giving you a huge stabilizing creature on the battlefield, and then providing that ongoing advantage every turn that it sticks on the battlefield. And so as long as Uro is legal in a format, any player that wants to like turn that proverbial corner, take over the long game, is going to want to run that card. Minor nitpick, but don't you think Uro demands a certain type of deck construction? Like any blue-green deck can't just throw in an Uro because there's going to be a lot of strategies where it's three mana, draw a card, gain a life. Or gain three life. Eh... <laughs> I mean, that's kind of outside the scope of this conversation, Stan. But I think that if, I mean, what kind of Simic deck are you creating besides, I think I played against like Simic Spirits recently, but maybe they want to run it too. I don't know. How about, let's put a pin in this interjection and then I will revisit it during my mini dive. Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Okay, so sorry for the little history lesson. Uh, Brings us to Historic, where of course Uro is legal, which means it is, if not, it's one of, if not the most, powerful creature in the format, and you usually want to pay, play those in your deck, right? And that makes Sultai Midrange the go-to midrange deck of Historic. But like I said, I kind of want to talk about the name of this deck before I talk about the deck itself, Sultai Midrange. And I really don't think this is a midrange deck, because I think this is fundamentally a ramp control deck, which is an interesting sort of archetype to find itself atop the historic metagame, or very close to it. 
Because like let's let's look at modern, right? Like Earl piles look more like stricter control decks. They have the cheap removal in whites, and they have cheap counter spells, they have the really powerful creatures like Uro and Omnath that give you that ongoing value. Then of course they have the planeswalkers and Azorius colors primarily lets them take over the long game as well. This historic deck doesn't look a lot like many other decks or at least many other successful decks, I guess, that we've seen before. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something, um, so feel free to call me out. But that's, I think, primarily because Uro incentivizes a heavy Simic mana base due to the blue, blue, green, green escape cost. And so you can't splash an Uro like you could potentially splash an Oko back in the day, right? And so... And as this, the, the blue, blue, green, green escape cost has, as, like I said in Modern and Pioneer, pushes that deck out of the realm of Golgari, out of the realm of Jund, and well into Simic, right? And another feature of Historic is that the only really efficient removal is in black. You, know, you don't have Bolt, you don't have Path. And then Thoughtseize for some reasons in the format, and so it's a, even more appealing to move into uh, the black color as well. And then we get stuff like the Zagoth Triome printed in Ilob. You get you have all the shocks, you have all the checks, you have Fabled Passage. You're allow you're able to do exactly what Watsi claimed that we wouldn't be able to do when they kept the fetches even out of Pioneer and of course out of Historic, which is run good stuff files that have nearly no problem with their mana. Yeah, but the whole reason that these these good stuff piles have no problem with their mana is because of the rampart you were talking about, right? Yeah. Because you I get to agree. play and draw extra lands, and so you're you're fixed all the time. And even if a deck like this runs, you know, if they run Fable Passage, you're not as reliant on it for fixing as you are sometimes for like filling a little hole in your perfect yeah, mana base. Exactly. Yeah, like you're filling you're filling the, the color you might you might need, you're enabling revolt, you're filling the graveyard for Uro's escape, all that little kind of stuff. So like you kind of have every incentive to run the best cards black, green, and blue have to offer in Pioneer, and you can do so pretty easily because of the mana and the ramp cards that Dave mentioned, and this deck is the result. And so, yeah, this is a lot of context. Sorry for all the context here, which is kind of fine because I feel like the actual construction of this deck is somewhat straightforward. Like, playing it pretty much isn't super straightforward, but we're going to get to that later. So we, we kind of... I saw you guys narrow your eyes or raise your eyebrows when I said it's a ramp control deck, right? not a real mid-range deck. And I think the main reason I call it that is because the first thing you notice is a major lack of early and efficient creature threats. Like the mm -hmm. only creatures in this deck are like two to three Hydroid Crisis and three to four Uros. And neither of these are plays that you're wanting to, you can get onto the board very early or you want to get onto the board very early. And even if you did, they're not stabilizing you. Like Uro, of course, is. Yeah, I mean, you. this deck generally does have no problem with playing a turn three Uro, right? Like, just doing it, unless you're keeping up counters sure. for some reason. Depending on what you're but, doing, like, depending on the threats on the other side of the battlefield. But, yeah, like, you you will frequently just get the Uro going, and, you know, you get that ramp going and stuff like that. But right. You're not getting them onto the battlefield to, like, you know, as your goif. You're not starting to attack or block with them anytime pretty early. Like, when you're able to escape that Uro and on tap with it, then you're capitalizing on that crazy text box. And when you cast that late game crisis for like X equals 10, and you're gaining five life and drawing five cards and getting your 10, 10 flyer, you're not going to lose that game. But you know what the deck does 
where the deck resembles more ridden range decks you, that you've seen is like the hand disruption and removal suite. Like you've got fatal push, you've got Thoughtseize, and fatal push gets that little funny bump in power level um, because of like the Uro sacrifice enables revolt, mm-hmm. and right. fatal passage also does it. You know, and and like I said, there's that black removal that only black really gets, like blood chief's thirst and eliminate and heartless act and maelstrom pulse and all that kind of stuff that you want in various amounts and numbers depending on your you know the meta that you're facing or the the style of deck you want to play and this deck really leans hard on uh, the ilob sweeper of extinction event which is a three and a black sorcery and lets you exile each creature that's either even or odd cmc and zero cmc counts for things like tokens and lands and you know modern jun doesn't even play damnation really right now yeah but these Saltai decks are running like two or three extinction events because it helps clean up the board early. Like on turn four, you're like, okay, I need to sweep out, like maybe get a three for one here. And then late, you can you can clean up the board without necessarily getting rid of all of your own threats. Yeah. And I think you actually have to be a little careful when you're playing against this deck that to keep in mind that they can play extinction event on turn three. Yep. If they want to, yep. you go growth spiral, play extinction event, Definitely got me when I was playing uh, them with uh, auras. So, yeah, it's it's really nice. It exiles as well, which is an important bit of text on Extinction Event because it you know gets rid of Uro entirely. It's just it's out of the graveyard. There's plenty of recursive threats that the you know, Raxac might want to get back. Um, so Raxac might want to get back. Um, so because of that strong blue identity I mentioned earlier, there's a number of main deck blue cards here as well. Aethergust, main deck Aethergust, okay? It's saying something about this format, like historic, that even like running two or even more main deck Aethergust is fully defensible and probably the right thing to be doing. And I mean, clearly the right thing to be doing based on the win rates, at least. I mean, it's a really challenging card. This is, this is getting into the play a little bit early, but I wanted to pick your guys' brains on Aethergust. I think it's a really challenging card to, to play well um, because there's a lot of timing things that you have to think about like you can bounce a green or a red spell on the stack you can wait for it to become a permanent and bounce it from the board at instant speed you can is it the better tempo play to like bounce the spell when they cast it or do you like do it on their next first main phase to like mess up their attack plan like what's the spell that you want to gust like does it make sense to even put it back on the top of their deck you know does it is it buying you enough real tempo to, to bother playing then it's sneaky in that the more you play with it, the more you do appreciate it for its flexibility. But then you also do hate that it's never a true counter spell in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot more success with that card just because I don't play mid rangey decks too much as an aggro, as a remand, basically in an aggro deck in some ways that has the get out of jail card free card where you can lift a permanent instead of a spell. And so being able to like, Aethergust, someone's like Clothis or something like that is helpful in addition to being able to quote unquote counter their spell or against prowess where, you know, somebody attacks with a giant soul scar mage and you're like, no, pick it up. And then yeah, there's yeah. no good options with that card really. But, um, I do think it's a bit more difficult in a deck like this to figure out exactly how to use it. Like you said, because this deck wants removal so much more than it wants tempo, but yeah, but the thing that this deck is doing is buying time so that it can ramp and play Nissa 
basically. Yeah. So, you know, if that's the plan, it's like I need to buy myself a turn so that I can make sure I get to Nyssa and that'll turn, the, that'll make me win the game. Then that that's makes sense as far as having Aethergust as well. Yeah. Tails End is becoming a more commonly seen single, like singleton main deck inclusion right now. Like our buddy Aspiring Spike, of course, is famous for championing this card recently. Others are beginning to take notice, I think. Tails End, one in the blue, counter target activated ability, triggered ability, or legendary spell. And this is surprisingly valuable, kind of all over the place. Like stifle your and or an opponent's like oh, euro trigger or euro itself or you counter that ember cleave or like the muxis or you counter any planeswalker or you counter ulamog or the ulamog trigger <laughs> uh you know counter there's just so many little random things like priest of the forgotten gods like dave's gonna talk about spoilers um and I think Tails End is pretty rad. It's it's like a fun, it's a fun one of, it's fun to have some more on the side. I think it's definitely flexible enough in this meta to handle the threats you're going to see. And, and the other spell Dave mentioned earlier that makes it more like a ramp deck, which is you know my my fundamental claim here, is that is Growth Spiral. Like so, this is an instant speed cantrip that also ramps your mana. Of course, that's a four of in this deck. So good. Um, it allows. You know, this along with Uro allows for some pretty speedy ramping into your mid and late game threats and just pulls you ahead of the opponent in terms of what you're able to do on the board than they're doing. And like Dave said, that threat that I think the most significant threat perhaps that I saved for last is Nissa who shakes the world. And you could conceivably call this a Nissa deck, I think, because along with Uro, Nissa is what lets you turn that corner and you can turn it hard really hard like the the plus creates threats and you can attack with them without giving up the board like you don't open nissa up for a crackback frequently but just by attacking with them because they have vigilance um, why, yeah, do they they have vigilance? Yes. why do they have vigilance why do they have vigilance it's so let you do absurd. crazy stuff with your mana yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah attack with them then use them to cast twice as many spells as you might normally uh her static ability of course ramps your mana lets any forest tap for additional mana which is crazy like it's it's fun the things you realize when you play it too like a breeding pool is a forest but you don't have to tap the breeding pool for green you tap the breeding pool for blue and you make an additional green so like you can it's it's one of the things about playing arena even on my laptop screen is like seeing what mana I have in play is actually pretty challenging. So like I'm constantly mousing over everything and being like, well, what do I animate here? Like what makes the most sense? What lets me create the most mana without putting like a valuable land at risk to like a removal spell. And so that's, it's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, and like, but once you have Nissa online, then you cast her huge hydroid crisis or you cycle away like your unnecessary triomes or like cycling lands without really losing tempo because you have so much mana available to you. And sticking in early Nissa, I would say, is like one of, if perhaps the fundamental goal of the deck. And being like the first player to do so in the mirror is like you've won the game. It just pulls you ahead so significantly and allows you to just get that single extra creature of value on the board. Um, I mean, of course, like Extinction Event in the Mirror can, can do some work there, but like you get that turn for Nissa on the play and you're feeling really good about it, like when your opponent didn't have any growth spirals or something like that. Um, you know, the mana base is kind of what you expect, like eight shocks, four triumphs, some basics, some fable passage. I like the Singleton Castle Lockthwain that Salt Eye can run over four color. Uh, it's really good for some kind of ongoing card draw. 
Uh, and it's a good reason, I think, to play it. Play Saltai over four color. Sideboard, because you're in three good colors, you have so many options, so many, so much flexibility. Like you can have more sweepers, like Cry of the Carnarium or Witch's Vengeance for like your goblins or sacrifice decks. You can have Narsid or Shark Typhoon for the mirror or like control decks or Negate or Aether Gusts where you need it or like some Elder Gargaroth or some random Planeswalker like Ashiok. And like the world's your oyster when you're playing three colors like this. And you can really tune it to fit the meta that you are seeing or expecting in a given tournament. Yeah. I mean, a big one that I forgot about in this meta is Narset Parter of Veils. Yeah. She's, she's, she's a crusher. So good. And like, it shuts down decks that you don't necessarily think it would like, it's a very difficult card for, for blue white auras to have hit the board and have a little bit of and stick because it draws some removal and then also keeps me from drawing cards for a turn. It basically, even if it keeps me from doing it for a turn, it's a big setback when you're on that blue white deck. So, yeah. All right. Moving on to kind of how this deck plays. And like when you play this deck is when you realize that's not really mid range besides just the deck construction, like, or perhaps as mid range as you might be used to, like, your early goal, of course, like any control deck, is to not be overwhelmed by aggro decks and also develop your game plan more quickly than your opponent is doing if you're in like a slower matchup. Like you, you want to try to prevent them from enabling their game plan while enabling yours so you can get the most value as early as possible. So, like, you know, you're doing the same things. You're, you're stripping the opponent's hand with Thoughtseize. You're using your removal to stop meaningful threats, keep that life total high enough ramping with growth spiral if that you you know it's 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 always so great on turn two when you're like okay i'm representing an aether gust i'm representing a fatal push i'm representing an eliminate and uh you don't do anything reasonable i grow spiral sweet like i get i start ramping my mana i'm drawing through my deck uh you know maybe early on you're playing an uro like dave said to get that mana online keep drawing through your deck as well you know you can when you need to, you get like that quick two or three for one with like your first extinction events. You sort of stabilize there a little bit. You keep making your mana, your, your land drops because you want to play on curve or even better, like ahead of curve. And so you, it runs 28 lands typically. You know what I mean? Like this is not mid range territory typically. Uh, this is more control deck land count. Quick question about some of these decks that are running like 28 or more lands. Are you keeping five land hands sometimes what are your mulligan decisions like Mm. yeah that's a really good question i've been punished on stream um for dumb keeps and like by twitch you got like dmca'd oh no (laughs) um i'm punished by losing where it's like okay i've got an extinction event and a um maelstrom pulse and a nissa and four lands right and it's like okay all i have to do is yeah, that's 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 right. Yeah, that that's not a good keep. No, no, it's a good. It's it looks like a good keep, right? And yeah. then like your opponent is uh, gruel, and they get or like a, a a weird like some kind of creature deck that gets uh, f- four creatures on the board before you can cast your first sweeper, and you only get two of their cards, and your land and your life total is like at nine already, and you don't you can't stabilize from there. Hmm. Um, and so it. In the blind, there are keeps that are good. And then when you know what you're playing, you have to sort of be like, you have to be realistic, right? Which is, okay, am I going to stabilize in time? Are they going to be able to put enough pressure on me when they're on the play and I'm not type thing to to really make this work? But yes, Dan, I think that you can sort of rely 
on the deck to give you something that is perhaps enough. I think that if you don't have ramp, it's 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 tempting to be like, okay, I've got five lands and I can play them, boom, 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 and I can have my Nissa, but like you need to be a little bit ahead of the curve than that. So like, you know, whether that's an Uro getting you ahead of the curve or like a growth spiral, I think those growth spiral is like sneakily and really important to this deck. Uh, and it's, it's one of the most important cards that you can see in your opener is because it's, it's so free and it is more than free in that it lets you get ahead of what your opponent's doing like mana for mana cost. Um, you know, then, you know, once you get that Nissa down, you have the mana for it, you make your land creatures, you make your mana insane, and then you cast your, like, huge crisis, you escape that Uro really easily. I think Nissa is often enough to win with, because, like I said, she defends herself so well with the creature land she's making. Uh, you're able to make these board states where, like, your second or, like, your third extinction event gets cast on odd. You keep all your creature lands... Uh, maybe your hydrate crisis is there and like they have one or two creatures left and you're like, well, I was already putting so much pressure, whittling your creatures down. And it's just, you're able to make that corner turn like the most powerful mid range deck of all time, because you just, you're, you have the creature engine that also makes you able to cast your X spells or double spell so easily. All right, Shane. Yeah. What do you think? Thoughts. You've given <laughs> us you've given us your take. Yeah. Well, it's more that's more of like the that's like the the treatise, the the primer. I think I mean the deck's clearly very good. Right? Like if I was doing a sleeve believe heave, like I wouldn't have any choice but to say it's a sleeve. You know what this sounds like to me? What's that? This is Tron. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's like Tron in a way. In, in that, that it's I mean, a like you're tap not... out control deck where instead of Expedition Map, you play Growth Spiral. And instead of Chromatic Sphere, you play like Mindstone. Yeah, I mean, that's why I said it's a ramp control deck, which is what Tron is. Yeah, but you also don't have to tap out with this deck because your cards are instants. Or at least lots yes. of them are instants, which is, which is helpful. Like your removal spells are instants. Growth Spiral is an instant, which is absurd. Yeah. But... um. So it helps you not be a tap out. So you get to do other stuff too sometimes. So, but. so it's better than Tron. Well, it's it's not as one note as Tron. Like, you know what I mean? And sometimes that's bad. Yeah. Like, so, and I'll, I'll get into kind of like where I feel like it's bad sometimes. Um, Like the issue for me with this deck ends up being like, what is this deck doing for me in a given environment? And is that the best thing for me to be doing? Whether that's, caring about my win rate or caring about my enjoyment of the game. Because like, let's talk win rate, right? Like the deck is good, but statistically on the ladder, it's not overpowered. Like our friends at untapped uh, tell us that Sultai mid over the past month in platinum to mythic, where I think things get real, it has a 57% win rate. Like that sounds incredible until you see that six other decks have similar or even higher win rates. Um, up there. Like Saltai has a pretty middle of the road performance against a lot of the other top decks. Like one of the worst matchups is one of the most popular. It's Goblins. And Saltai wins that like 37% of the time. How Uh, is that? That's unreal to me for some reason. You can't stop. You can't, you don't have enough, like you have to, you're really leaning on extinction event and like you just have, everything has to line up perfectly. Like you have to have the right thoughtsies at the right. I mean, the thoughtsies at the right time, you have to have the Aether Gust at the right time. You have to have the sweeper that hits like all of their even or all of their odd creatures. Everything has haste 
So right. it's like, it's just, it's such a pain to, to have everything line up perfectly. Like I've beaten it, but 37% of the time I think feels pretty accurate. Also, the sweepers don't get um, everything because like Goblin Snoop will survive a bunch of turns and then you can just rebuild your board really quickly. Right. Yeah, that you can re and you can reboard so you excuse me, you can rebuild so quickly, like you said, Stan, where it's like, yeah, I've stabilized, but uh no one cares because like you just untap and go crazy again. Or have like the third Muxis or something like that, right? I I think that Sultai makes up that sort of goblin's weakness by handling things like mono red or auras quite well. And of course it's gonna like gobble up any random ladder jank that someone might be playing up there. Uh so it's in Important to note, though, that untapped is from actual people playing the ladder. Like, this is not the very best players in a tournament environment, right? And that's going to skew the performance of various decks. Sultai involves more decisions than a lot of other decks. And the more decisions mean things are going to go wrong. Uh, there's lots of edges to be gained with the very best playing. And, like, we're the normal people on the ladder, right? And I think that I take a lot more stock in untapped data than I do, like, tournament conversion rates or win rates there, Simply because, like, you know, we're we're the normies. You know what I mean? Like, we're the we're the casual spikes playing on the ladder. And so, like, if it's fifty seven percent, I'm not saying like this is some kind of thing that's outstanding in the field. Um, and then the games are long. Like, you have to think a lot, and without necessarily a return on that investment, unless you just like playing that kind of deck and you like thinking a lot and you like making a lot of decisions. And there's definitely a specific segment of the player population that is into that. And the problem for me, though, is that the gameplay feels pretty similar, like game after game. Like, you have a lot of lines to get to that end game, but, like, your end game is what it is. And that's fine. Like, I think a lot of control decks are like that, right? Which is, like, I don't have a lot of win cons, and I get to them, and I take over with them. Um, But you can you can kind of, like, you can turn that b- potential bug of Sultai into a feature, like, when you get into that tournament meta. Like, you turn tune the deck for things you expect to see, you shore up those bad matchups without necessarily compromising like your overall performance because you're not necessarily saying like I have to account for everything. I can account for four things or five things. Um, you know, on the, but on the ladder, like if I'm trying to make my way to Mythic, like I'm just going to go back to Gruul or go back to like a really good mono red deck or something like that, or like maybe even try Auras because like these are statistically similar to Sultai with like much shorter matches. Like I played like you know ten. 10 Sultai matches and like maybe six four color matches. And I played like three times as long as twice as many matches of gruel. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just, it's so much more efficient, but anyway, that's a ton of time, ton of time spent. I apologize, but I think this is an important deck to talk about and get into. Yeah. You know, it's 45% of the meta. So you took 45% of the time that we had. Yeah. <laughs> Directly proportional match length to episode length to dive down. length. I mean, look, sleeve it. I'm just kidding. Next. <laughs> I, I, I will say the most interesting learning to me is that it doesn't run over goblins quite as much as I thought it did. Um, and maybe part of that is user er- error. Maybe part of that is just like untapped data is looking at a large sample size. So it's not necessarily the end all be all translation of what your, what your experience is going to be at a, as a player. But I mean, 28 lands, that's, that's a lot of air and it's a slow it- deck. So like if you can combo often like play muxus on turn three or four it sounds like that'll just do it a lot it always feels like this deck just plays lands and then i lose like i just don't <laughs> like I, i'm always like i'm gonna get there and then it's like oh i no. didn't get there yeah 
Or they play a single Elder Gargaroth, and you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, I lose. I'm playing Gruul. I'm going to lose very slowly. All right, can I change the pace a little bit? Oh, please. I'm, I'm going to try to sell you guys something that I've got in the trunk of my car. What does Teferi say? The time is now. <laughs> Let's slow things down. Is that what he says? Yeah. We're going to speed things up, though, because Stan has what he thinks is one of the best decks in best of one, as opposed to one of the best decks in best of three, I guess, in Saltai. Yeah. Can I interest you in a two-card combo that no. can win on turn three? Whoa. It never whiffs, and it works so quickly that you never have to worry about running out of time or clicking too much. Sounds great. That sounds pretty nice, right? No. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> Dave hates it. So I recently decided to bite the bullet and, and buy into a deck that has kind of been on my radar for a while now. And that is four color Neostorm. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you monster. I thought I, you, cha- you, you, you changed the script on me. You have those fake notes like you just peeled off and revealed Neoform and I'm out, I'm out of this episode now. That's right. I'm not talking about Rakdos Arcanist. I'm talking about Neostorm. You monster. Neostorm sounds like a, a children's toy from the 90s. Like a board game. <laughs> I mean, it, just sound, it just sounds like something, a really important plot point from the Matrix to me. But. You get caught up in the Neostorm. 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 Should I do my whole section in this voice? The Neostorm voice. My name is Neostorm. Neostorm play kit only comes with the included accessories and, and vehicles does not come with the playset. Right. Lighting and effects added. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's do this. Neostorm. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm going to talk as, as much as Shane because my deck is so much faster. Neostorm. It's a combo deck. It's based in blue green. Those are cinnamon colors, but it is built to support four colors and that includes red and black. So this is a Simic deck that doesn't run a row. Basically, yeah. And I'll yeah. talk about Uro just a little bit because I did shoehorn a couple of them into the sideboard and then realized that they kind of have no place in it. And I'll get to why eventually. But the thing about Neostorm is that it is designed entirely to serve a single purpose, which is to cast Neoform and then just make essentially infinite copies of that spell with the goal of flooding the board with a bunch of three threes, giving them haste, and then attacking once, sometimes twice in a single turn. And I'm going to explain how all this works in more detail, because I do think that understanding how all the mechanics of the deck work together is basically the most important step, not just to figure out how this deck works and wins, but also how to beat it. And I'm going to do this in the most fun way possible, which is talking about lines, the shortest distance between two points. The most typical win that I found while piloting Neostorm and playing against it basically happens by casting two cards, and those are Seagate Stormcaller, followed immediately by Neoform. And even though everyone knows what Neoform does, I'm going to read it anyway, because I did not fully grasp how powerful this synergy is until I actually loaded the deck up myself. Neoform is blue and green for sorcery as an additional cost to cast this spell, Sack a creature. Search your library for a creature with CMC equal to 1 plus the sacked creatures. CMC, put it on the battlefield with a 1-1 counter shuffle. And I'll admit that this was not intuitive to me at first, but the reason this card and combo works is because that first line of text about sacrificing a creature only comes up the first time you cast the spell. 
Every subsequent copy just goes on the stack without being cast. You don't have to sack any more creatures. You just sack the first creature, Jerry. Oof. So in other words, this is not a birthing pod deck. You're, You're not sacking creatures up a chain. You just sack one creature, which in turn lets you flood the board. So Stormcaller is one in a blue. When it ETBs, the next instant or sorcery spell you play this turn gets copied. So you play your Stormcaller, you play your Neoform, you sack your two drop, and then every subsequent copy of Neoform essentially reads, fetch a three CMC creature and put it on the battlefield. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. And the three CMC creature that you fetch is a card called Dualcaster Mage. Cousin to Snapcaster. Dualcaster is one red red for a 2-2 when an ETB's copy instant or sorcery. So now, when Dualcaster hits the board, it sees this revised version of Neoform on the stack and makes another copy of it. And from there, you just keep grabbing your Dualcasters, keep making copies of Neoform, and when you run out of Dualcasters, you start fetching another 3-drop, which is Glasspool Mimic. Which is 2 in a blue when it ETB's, it enters as a copy of any creature you have on the battlefield. So now you're making additional copies of Dualcaster. Basically, in a lot of games, you end up with eight copies of Dualcaster Mage on the board, and they're all three threes. When you find because right, they get a counter from Neoform, exactly. which is worth mentioning. That's not like oh, the and- last weird clause in Neoform. Exactly. So okay. it, and you you have to you have to have you run out of Dualcaster Mages. I get it now. Okay, you have to have the Glassful Mimic for more Mages. Exactly. So now you've got these eight Mages on the board. They don't have haste. They're just three threes. But you still have two copies of Neoform on the stack. Eight mages a week. It, that, that's that's how the song goes, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. The classic song by the the Beatles? Beatles. So in no particular order, you use your last two copies of Neoform to grab first a Tuck Tuck Rubble Fort, which is a three CMC <laughs> wall that gives all of your creatures haste. Perfect. And then a combat celebrant, three CMC human warrior from Amonkhet that reads, if the celebrant has not been exerted this term, you, turn, you may exert it as it attacks. When you do untap all other creatures you control after this phase, there is an additional combat phase. Mm-hmm. Summary. Long story short, you make a bunch of three threes, you attack with them. If that first attack wasn't enough, your celebrant makes it possible to attack a second time. Okay, so... Just to be really clear, you have to sacrifice Seagate Stormcaller to make this all work, right? Or you have to sacrifice A2 drop Correct. to make it all work. Correct. Okay. There is an alternative line I will get to in just a moment, but this is your your main plan of attack is Seagate Stormcaller into Neoform. It's how 9 out of 10 wins actually play out. Okay. There was one game where I had three attack steps because I had previously hard cast a Celebrant that stuck around and then I got to combo off and then get a second celebrant so i attacked three times in one turn i still lost because i was playing against mono white life gain <laughs> they, oh no they had like a 30 point life gain delta against me so i like swung three times and got them to i think like 10 life and then they killed me As they um, should i felt bad yeah you shouldn't i did this to myself There are two other lines I'm going to mention very briefly because they don't come up as often, but they feel awesome when you pull them off. One is with a single Gilded Goose, two copies of Neoform, and access to four mana. You can sack the Goose to get a Stormcaller and then sack the Stormcaller with your second Neoform. 
that feels good. Um, and you can do that on turn three because you can use your goose to tap that with a land to cast that first neoform. And then you still have the two mana up to cast the second neoform once your Seagate Stormcaller hits the battlefield. This, okay. The second line, if you have any two drop on the board and you have a dual caster mage in hand and a neoform in hand and five mana up, you can cast the neoform, hold priority, cast your dual caster. You're not sacking your dual casters because the neoform has already sacked whatever two drop you had on the board previously, which could be a paradise druid. It could be a Seagate Stormcaller that you may have cast for value or just to like put a body down. Like I said, these don't come up nearly as often as the as the classic one-two punch. So what are you doing to try to draw through your deck mm-hmm. to get to your payoffs? Are there are there any kind of cantrippy cards or what's that suite like? This was my big question as well. Like, what else is in this deck? I mean, he's he's named a lot of cards, to be clear. Like, I mean, it stacks up to a full deck pretty quick when you're like, I gotta have four mimics, I gotta have four dual casters, I gotta have four neoforms, I gotta have four storm callers. Like that's yeah, that's right. t- stacking yeah. up fast, so there's not a lot of room. And you got two Tuck Tuck, and you got mm-hmm. two Celebrants. <laughs> Love casting Tuck Tuck. What a fun name for a card. So it has some very important cards that makes this combo so much more consistent. And and why I say so much more consistent, I say this combo is really, really consistent. Because the version that I was playing, which had a nearly 60% win rate and best of one on untapped, runs four copies of Wishclaw Talisman. One in a black artifact, enters the battlefield with three wish counters on it, pay a generic mana, tap, remove a wish counter from the talisman, search your library for a card, put it in your hand, shuffle your library, your opponent gains control of Wishclaw Talisman. Activate this ability only during your turn. You guys ever played with or against this card? Maybe. Uh, yes, one one time, to- one or two times. It rules. <laughs> what an amazing card! Most of the time, it just reads: fetch a card, give this to your opponent, and that's it. And your opponents, Game over. your opponents yeah. are never cashing it. A because they're afraid to give it back to you, or B you're using it to combo off on that turn, so it doesn't matter that they have it for a turn right people are scared of this card really funny puts you into some very interesting positions as well that can in some cases actually reward you for understanding what your opponent is doing so there were games where i would just crack it the first time knowing that i couldn't win that turn but basically counting on the fact that my opponent could fetch anything in their deck and it wouldn't make a difference because they don't necessarily have something that could like win on the turn for them or disrupt me substantially so that's one way to get through the deck, Dave, to answer your question. The other way is four copies of Shimmer of Possibility. One in a blue sorcery, look at the top four cards, put one into your hand. Impulse. This is this is impulse, but it's sorcery speed. Okay. You also have a couple copies of Enter the Royal. Not technically a cantrip, but it can kick to be a cantrip, which is very real. Like, this deck has four copies of Paradise Druid. It has four copies of Gilded Goose. So you have, like, ramp in there so sometimes you're you're playing your four mana into the royal on turn three are, are you running like so i'm looking at some lists right now did was the list that you were playing did it run were you running opt even or no opt so i was not running opt i was not running wall of blossoms which comes up sometimes Sullendy visions valakut exploration i've seen some you lists not Uro. running valakut awakening no 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 wow okay none of those i was just all in on the combo four talisman um, and for Shimmer of Possibility. And also, like I mentioned, you've got eight mana dorks with Druid and Gilded Goose. Yeah. 
So the deck is awesome uh, with an asterisk. <laughs> in best of one, Untapped has this deck at about a 59% win rate. In best of three, I've seen it go down to 49%. I've seen some versions sub 40%. The deck mm. is practically unplayable after sideboarding. <laughs> because it is so easy to hate out. Gets a ton of splash hate from goblins because Graft Digger's Cage just shuts down Neoform. Yeah. And people main deck Graft Digger's Cage, so it makes Into the Royal super important. And because this deck runs main deck Into the Royals and Wish Cloud Talisman, sometimes you can fetch your way out of a sticky situation and still win. But the fact that so many decks are playing Graft Digger's Cage in this format because of how good it is against goblins and, and other strategies as well, Neostorm gets punished for that too. Authority of the Consuls. One man enchantment sees playing auras as well as some white based control decks makes it impossible to attack the turn that you combo off, potentially opening you up to a wrath as well because Authority reads creatures your opponents control that enter the battlefield enter tapped. Hushbringer also sees playing auras, basically shuts down all of your wizard ETBs. Hush- yeah. Hushbringer says creatures do not have ETB effects. You gotta have those wizard ETBs. You need them for this deck. And then, of course, Mystical Dispute, it counters both Neoform and Stormcaller. And because this deck is so mana-hungry, it's trying to combo off on turn 0-4, you never have the mana to pay that 3-CMC tax. Are you still seeing a lot of Mystical Disputes? I feel like a lot of decks are shaving it recently. Like, it doesn't have the power that it seemingly, seemingly used to, or at least in, in Historic. I, I'm not seeing a lot of them, but I see them periodically, because sometimes people even play a main deck in Best of One. Yeah, I'm surprised. It's a card that hasn't made it in the sideboard of my Auras deck, when I feel like it's a card I definitely put in, in, like, Blue-Red Prowess all the time. You know, either either deck could run it, but they're they're not in historic. So, here's the other thing I gotta say about best of one versus best of three, which kind of speaks to the arena client in general. Best of one has a, a hand smoothing effect, where and this is not conspiracy. Everyone knows this. Wizards is honest about this. When you yeah. when you play best of one Magic on Arena, the platform draws two hands for you and then gives you the hand with the best spell to land ratio. So in effect, when you're playing Neostorm in best of one, you almost never have to worry about your mana because you're always going to have like at least two to three lands to just get the ball rolling. And I think that's really significant where in best of three, in some cases, it becomes almost like a three card combo because you need your Neoform, you need your Stormcaller, and you need the lands to do it. Best of one, you're just always, you're never worried about the mana. On the other hand, it sideboards really nicely. And I've won a bunch of games where I had to multi six. I've won no shortage of games where I multi five. I've once won a multi four with just like two lands, the two combo pieces, and then eventually drawing into a ramp in, a, in another land. Stan, you said it sideboards nicely. Didn't you mean mulligans nicely? I did. Thank you. Because you're playing best of one with this, right? I have played a little bit of best of three. And that's actually where I tried experimenting with some Uros that I happen to have in my collection. And we were talking about whether or not Uro can slide into any Simic deck. Arrow basically has no place in the version of the deck that I played because I am not filling up my graveyard at all. There's a ton of games where I just win on turn three or four with an empty graveyard because I'm not playing um, the fetch land. I'm not playing Fabled Passage or Evolving Wilds. I'm just playing land, land, Gilded Goose, combo off, and that's it. And in this 
deck, at least. I found there are some attempts at best of three where I tried to side in an Uro because I thought maybe the game was going to go long. Maybe they're going to bring in some hate against me. But that Uro just basically read as like a three mana explore. And I don't think it's really good enough at that rate. So Stan, <clears throat> what do you think about this? Is this your new favorite deck? Yeah. Is this everyone should make this immediately? I don't know that it's for everyone, but I loved playing this deck. I loved it a lot more than playing Goblins. Um, and I, I kind of just want to compare it to Goblins briefly. I did find that the turn three and four kills are more consistent here because you're more all in on that combo win. Goblins has Matron, so it does have, you know, some version of redundancy, but this has more cantrips um, in addition to more tools to combo off. You can have those other lines, whereas Goblins just has Muxus. On the other hand, Goblins has a plan B. Like, it can beat down, it can beat a cage. This deck is almost never beating a resolved or an unanswered cage. So where you maybe lose plan B, you get a little bit more speed and you get a little bit more consistency for the combo plan. Sweet. So are you just going to run this out like all the time in best of one now and see how far you can go? Or are you still playing it? Like where, where are you at as far as enjoyment goes? I am enjoying it a lot more than goblins in best of one. I think I have a, so I'm plat high plat three right now. I've been like teetering in platinum four with every other deck I was playing. Once I picked up this deck, I started climbing again. I think I might be able to make a run for diamond and I think I'm going to just keep going. I got a couple seven win events, best of one events in this. The best of three events are so much harder for the reasons I mentioned. And as a result, like the best of three ladder is so much harder. So I have to do it slowly, but I think I could be a little bit more consistent best of one. But I also just love playing the deck. I love giving people the good game, the turn that I start to combo off to try to encourage them to concede. Don't do that. Monster. Monster. I have to. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, a, you're an extra monster now. I have the win. It's it's like you can watch me click 10 times or you can just accept defeat. That's awesome, Stan. I'm glad. I'm glad you got a I'm glad you got some a new best of one deck that you love playing. I do. I think this is going to tide me over until Calatime releases and I have to buy some more packs, but so you know, yeah, remember how remember how fast we we're going to do that? I think you easily took as much time as I did. Untrue. Easily. I I totally have a stop. Easily. Nope. I have a stopwatch going here, Shane. It's how far how far how far true. how far how far ahead was I? 10 more minutes. No, you're kidding me. Nope. I talked for I'm, 38 minutes? I think you talked for 30 minutes and Stan talked for 18. No, Stan stands at least nope. 23. We're not doing this on air. Listen, you know, I'm young. I can move a little <laughs> faster. Yeah. I got longer legs, but my two dads stop fighting. Yeah, right. I want to hear. I want to hear, Dad, Dave, the Godfather, yeah, Daddy Dave. I want to hear about Raxac. Yeah, guys, we got to talk about the other giant meta deck that we've never spoken about on this, and that literally I had never played against. Maybe, maybe one time until I picked up this deck, and then it felt like Arena paired me against it every single match <laughs> for like two days. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about Rakdos Sacrifice. And here's what I have to say about this deck is that I'm last, but I think this deck is first. I think this deck Whoa. is unreal. Okay. And I don't even think I'm good at it, but this deck has got a lot, a lot going on with it. And it's got a lot of power. So basically, you know, after playing blue white for a while, I wanted to try to learn one of the higher up meta decks. I could have got Sultai. I could have got, um, you know, blue white control or something like that. But I really felt like that I wanted to play a Thoughtseize deck, which it turns out this isn't really a Thoughtseize deck. <laughs> yeah. But I also like that um, the kind of graveyard synergy that's going on here and has a little bit more kind of technical 
play to it than what Auras has, which while it has a lot going on, there's there's so much to manage with this deck that I just really thought this would help me give a good like perspective into arena and historic. And so I picked it up recently. And have you all have you guys ever read Cauldron Familiar and Witch's Oven? <laughs> have you seen these cards? Yeah. 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 Have you yeah, seen them? Dave. Um, okay. Believable. Yeah. I how could these cards have been in the same set? Same set. Why because, not? You know why? I'll tell you why. It's because you can only tap Witch's Oven once per turn. That's oh. why. Yeah, that's not... <laughs> yeah, like, that's that's a problem. Okay, so what is this deck? So if you haven't seen this deck, you haven't played it, you haven't played with it, Sacrifice is a Rakdos deck, sometimes Jun deck, that focuses on very specific synergies that you can get from sacrificing a lot of different permanent types. Weird to say... But that's what it is. It's mostly sacrificing creatures, but occasionally there are other things as well that you get to do that you get triggers off of. And the truth is, like, I think that this is like a, you know, this is kind of like a grindy aggro deck that has all these kind of microtransactions and lines of play that allow you to adapt your plan a little bit to where it needs to go. So it's all about managing triggers, playing to the board, playing against creature decks. You know, as as was mentioned on a reading deck list a couple of weeks, and they did a huge dive down into this deck, which you should listen to because they're much smarter than us. Um, they they said that in a meta where there aren't a lot of creature decks, this deck would not be very good, and I think that's pretty true because it gets a lot of edge from just devouring decks that rely heavily on creatures to be their oh, payoffs. Yeah eats them alive just gruel against this deck is so hard it you, to, you know it, draw perfectly it literally eats them alive and so we'll talk about that in a minute but so if i would boil this da- deck down to one interaction it's what i was just talking about a minute ago which is the cat oven you know take the cat put it into the oven like that is the whole axis that this deck is built around and so in case you haven't seen it haven't aren't familiar with how it works you know, cauldron familiar is 1-1. One, one. It's a cat. It costs black, a black mana. When it enters the battlefield, you do a drain gain trigger. Okay? This is important. And then it says, sacrifice a food, return cauldron familiar from your graveyard to the battlefield. And then the other side of this coin is witch's oven, which costs a single colorless. And it says, tap, sacrifice a creature, create a food token. If the sacrifice creature's toughness was four or greater, create two food tokens instead. That is it. And what this does... <laughs> is unreal what have we said in the past about sacrifice abilities that do not require mana and even when they require tapping they're always going to find a way to be used and this is just a such a good indication of that this whole deck honestly is built around this interaction i think so it's two highly synergistic one drops that make a loop so you have a cat sack a cat to the oven get the benefits of the sack triggers. Then you have a food. Then you sack the food to the cat's ability, which is at instant speed and doesn't cost any mana. The text is just sacrifice a food. Yep, that's That's all it it says. And then you get cats come to to play ability and then repeat as much as you can. Do it all the time. Click a lot. It's unreal when you have multiple witches ovens out and one cat because you'll do this three times a turn. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, this basic engine was part of Eldraine standard i believe because i remember playing against it a lot when i was doing arena months ago and now it's back here doing the same thing it's like when i always play aggressive creature decks right so like you know one of the things i'm sure you'll talk about dave is like you can block with the cat sack the cat get the food 
end of turn if you want to get the cat back. There's some reasons you might not want to get an end of turn. There's like you can just you keep that annoying blocker. You're gaining life. You're yep. draining me. Yep. And here's me. the list of what it does. It lets you pack in for damage through the drain. It lets you slowly recover from aggro plans because you gain life every time you do it. It provides death or sack triggers that do other things in the deck. It lets you chump block indefinitely. There's so many different things that you can do. And when you do it and fire it off makes a big, a big part of it. So what the deck does, I think, is it takes this interaction and builds an entire shell around it, right? So what you end up with is a core where sacking permanence and creatures is good. Is and you find ways to maximize it. So, Dave, would you say sometimes <laughs> sacrificing permanence can be good? Can be good. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the main things you want to do. So that's the first thing you should do. You build a you build a core where you get triggers. You get paid off for sacrificing creatures and permanents. The second thing that you do to build off of that is build a core where because when you have creatures dying, you want to find ways to bring them back. You build a plan where filling the graveyard is good, either because you're bringing permanents back or because of, of uh, because that's a place that essentially extends your hand. And then you use these two assets to kind of take advantage of a couple of special cards that help pay it off even more. So that's kind of the way I think about this deck. There's like the sack trigger payoffs, there's the graveyard part of it, and then there's the kind of bonus card. So I'm going to go really quickly through those three. So when you're thinking about this deck and you're thinking about playing against this deck, you can kind of try to figure out which part of their plan you want to disrupt. You want to make it hard or bad for them to sack creatures with that pig, for example. Do you want to attack their graveyard, which, you know, is a less powerful axis against them, but still helps a lot because they can't reuse things. And then just a couple other things to keep in mind. So how do you make sacrificing good? Two huge payoffs in their Axac deck make sacrificing things good. And we're going to start with the less impressive one first. And that is Midnight Reaper, which is a 3-2. Uh, it is from... Which deck is... Which one is that from? It is from Guilds of Ravnica. It's a zombie knight. It's a two-colorless and a black. And the text on it says, whenever a non-token creature you control dies, Midnight Reaper deals one damage to you and you draw a card. So this is this idea where, you know, whenever you sacrifice a non-token, you get to draw a card. And it happens all the time in this deck, constantly. I've had games with this, this deck before where I had Cat and two or three Ovens and a Midnight Reaper out, and I'm just drawing three cards a turn. And just drawing three I'm, cards and playing three cards a turn and just kind of going. If I recall correctly, Dave, you enjoy drawing cards, right? I love drawing cards. Yeah, that's why I wanted to start with this one, even though it's not as good as the other payoff. So in cases where you do have cat oven, you get to draw loop. When you don't have oven, you get to do other stuff because there are other sacrifice outlets within this deck for sure. And that's important because oven's not the only sacrifice outlet, but we'll get to those in a little bit. So payoff number one, sat creatures to draw cards. The second one is key payoff is uh, Mayhem Devil, which is I don't even know how, what this card is. How this card Bonkers has happened? Card. Yeah, so it's a three three for one colorless red black that says whenever a player sacrifices a permanent, Mayhem Devil deals one damage to any target. That's it. So what I've missed when I read this was whenever a player sacrifices a permanent. Yep. So if your opponent <laughs> sacrifices something, you get to ping treasure tokens. It does. Food tokens. Yeah, treasure tokens. Seagate Stormcaller. Yeah, Fabled Passage. Yep. <laughs> if you tap a Fabled Passage, they get a draw card. The other thing is any target. Okay, I didn't really miss this, but 
how good this is is really hard to overstate that you can hit planeswalkers, you can hit their creatures, you can hit them. And so what you have in Mayhem Devil, the games when you have Mayhem Devil out on the board are so, are fundamentally different from the games where you don't. And the moments in the game when you do get it out, you often can close the game pretty quickly from there because it multiplies the damage that you're able to do. Or it gets you out of a tight situation where you're just like, well, you know, I play Mayhem Devil on turn three against goblins and then I ping... I do a couple of cat loops and then I clear their whole board because they have a bunch of one ones and they can't have those on the next turn to try to ramp with. Well, not only that, but they can't necessarily ramp off their own Skirk Prospectors because that's sacrificing goblins, which is then triggering the Mayhem Devil. Yeah, it does do that. I found that when I'm playing against goblins with this, I want to kill their creatures as much as possible. Like that's how I feel like the best way to get through goblins is to just keep their board clear so they don't get any extra benefits from from stuff. So I'm like proactive there i'm like get out of here so it's huge right so these are the cards that pay you for extra for sacrificing things there's one more that i'll talk about later but the second part is we built a graveyard deck right so who's we <laughs> you know we we you know that's my we, favorite tom hanks 80s movie yeah it is it's it's perfect it's cameron crow's real fall from grace is we built a graveyard deck um i don't know i thought that movie was pretty good oh really scar joe matt damon two of america's most charming actors power power couple it's true the cat was weird who they cast to be cauldron familiar i wasn't expecting it to be salem from clarissa or whatever not clarissa what was that called uh sabrina the teenage, sabrina witch, the teenage with, witch with clarissa right exactly all right so anyway the graveyard deck so this is familiar to people right from modern play patterns where it's like get some cards into your graveyard to be able to get uh paid out for it the big card that helps you with this in this version of the deck is Stitcher's supplier right where you play it you mill three cards in your graveyard you sacrifice it to something you put three more cards in your graveyard you get paid out by doing this because you have a card with escape a card that can activate to come back out of the graveyard and also cat can come right back out of it so getting cat in the graveyard is a way to get to your combo piece where you can draw witches oven but you don't have a cat yet so you try to mill to it so hands i think where you have oven are a little bit better of course than ones where you have cat right? Because one combo piece is much better than the other one by itself. So let's talk about the, the the simple cards. So the escape card that is really that really helps here is Woe Strider. And that card is Woe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the um, Woeist. The Woeist. Uh, it's another 3-2 for 3. It brings an 0-1 goat token in and it has the Viscerasir ability, which is sacrifice another creature, scry one. It, it can't sacrifice itself. But it also has escape for 3 black black it comes back bigger after escape, which is nice. Um, and actually a, a potent threat sometimes when you're really kind of grinding out a game. But the big part here is it's another sack outlet. It brings in more than one body and it lets you scry to be able to find pieces when you need it. And it has escape, so it comes back. So it pays you out for your graveyard plan. You also have Scrap Heap Scrounger, which is like everyone's recur favorite recursive beater. It's a great card. I kind of think it's one of the worst cards in this deck, honestly, because it's it's kind of clunky. You're not really trying to run this plan. Of course, you have uh, the cat, Cauldron Familiar, here as well. And then finally, some people run Kroxa. The list I've been running does not have any Kroxas in it, but it. Um, I've definitely seen some wild things playing against this deck where someone plays a Kroxa and then sacrifices the Kroxa to something else in response to sacrifice trigger and gets all this value. Hey Dave, where's your, yeah. where's your Bomat courier? You know what? My list is not running it and many of the lists are not, are not running that card. And I wonder sometimes yeah. if it should be in this over uh scrap heap scrounger, I mean, for example, you know who would tell but, you? Yes. Who's that? The host, the host of arena tech list. 
oh, was he into that? I forgot about that from that discussion. Th- that's kind of like their heads up play is that it just helps shore up some of the matchups where you're struggling. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, were they playing it over Scrap Heap Scounder? Do you remember? I think over Stitcher Supplier. I think they found Stitcher to be a little mopey. I agree with that. And I think the one thing that I'll note really quickly, because we are kind of running a little bit on time, is that in the, the Jun deck, fundamentally, the difference between this deck and the Jun deck is that the Jun deck runs Collected Company over Stitcher Supplier. Right. So all of these things, in a way, are kind of like draw engines, right? Bomac Courier is, Stitcher Supplier is, and Collected Company is. The list that I've seen at the top of the ladder win percentage-wise still have citrus supplier but depending on how you look at the metrics on on the ladder sometimes jund is much higher than rakdos sometimes it's the other way around but um i could definitely understand working with the citrus supplier slot or like i said the scrap heat scrounger slot where sometimes i was like i just want a different card here i'm remembering now their whole point with those two artifacts over stitcher supplier is that they're basically color fixing for you because they're colorless so you don't have to worry about like having the actual right mana while you're working towards your engine yeah and you know another card that people run in here that's more of a payoff card than anything else is uh dreadhorde butcher which is something that i i didn't get a chance to try out but it's a two drop that has haste that every time it hits an opponent it gets plus one plus one and then when it dies it does uh, damage equal to its power to any target so that's another card that can be good in that same kind of slot depending on what you want to do all right so got a couple of cards to talk about to finish this up and that is basically the payoff cards that fit in with this too are priest of forgotten gods which is like the most text i've ever seen on a two drop i think do you, do you guys know what priest of forgotten gods does can you recite it without looking i know you have to sacrifice two creatures okay yeah so it's tap sack two creatures you a make black black mana yeah and your opponent sacks a creature yeah oh except it also draws you a card and does two damage to your opponent. So when you tap it, you lose two creatures, but you draw a card, you get black, black mana. It does two damage to them. It's unbelievable amount of copy on a card. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, you have to sacrifice two creatures. That's supposed to be a downside. Yeah. But in a deck that's made to sacrifice things, you obviously are going to find a way to turn it into an upside. And this is the kind of, one of the main reasons that this deck can be so good against like aggro strategies, specifically like auras where they have one big threat or anything that's one big threat. You can just make them sacrifice their board. Is this faithless looting? I mean, (laughs) a little bit, it's definitely slower than that, but it does some wild stuff. And there are some games that just really turn on being able to get priest of forgotten gods out and active at the right time. Right. I mean, priest, whenever I play against sack, I feel like priest is the must kill. Or it's like, I have to deal, either bounce it or kill it while it has summoning sickness. Because yeah. as soon as it's online, it just takes over. It, it's like, it, in some ways to me, it feels like the linchpin that makes the deck so scary. Because the cat oven combo is kind of slow. I actually think Priest is really slow, too. And it's especially weird in the mid game where you have to like play it and then wait a turn to make it work. But you can always give it haste with Claim of the Firstborn. That's something that I did the other day in a league that was pretty amazing and (laughs) won me a game for sure uh so speaking of claim of the firstborn that's the next card that's a great payoff that this deck gets to play a few other decks also play this card but claim of the firstborn it's a one cmc threatened for creatures that have less than three cmc there's no of it's just claim the firstborn oh so just claim the firstborn sorry yeah claim the firstborn (laughs) so yeah we're taking the firstborn it's not getting claimed by the firstborn understood 
So this card is amazing in this deck, right? Because it's a one mana removal spell. It gives you a sack trigger. You get to to kind of bash in with whatever creature they have with it. You know, against some decks, that's totally wild. Like against auras, for example, you grab their uh, spirit caller or whatever and just like swing in and just hit them. And then they're pretty much dead because you took yeah. their 16, 16. But, you know, it's super on plan. It's super synergistic with the deck. Like I said, sometimes you got to remember is to uh, give your own creatures haste. Shane, I see that you you have you had a question that the reason it's playable is because of Uro. That's not true. You don't think so? You think it's just good enough? I think it's just good enough in the deck, honestly. I was kind of skeptical about it at first from just reading the list, but that that's uh, I think that that's kind of like overblown. It's too it's you mean too good. Claim to not have it. Yeah, claim. Remember your co-host Shane Beeps uh, did pick to click this card. Oh yeah, I remember. I would have p- picked it too. I mean, it's a one mana spell that does has a pretty powerful effect. Oh yeah, it's good. And then of course, Frexian Tower is super useful. Sometimes you just want it for ramp. Sometimes you want it for an extra sacrifice trigger, but that's what it is. So look, Dave, there's, there's just a lot to think about with this deck. There's a lot of triggers. You have to think about how, when to ping things, when to fire off your loop, when to grab their creatures, which creature to grab. You know, like I mentioned, I haven't used the Coco version that plays Coco and Corvold. Sometimes I haven't tried Dreadhorde butcher, but I think this deck is, is really, really very good. And I think it's more powerful than something like Auras and more consistent because it just has more lines of play. Although, you know, Auras is still a very good deck. I'll probably alternate back and forth between this and Auras, you know, as I try to ladder for the rest of the way up. It's more just like this is kind of laddering on hard mode, I think, because even though I think the stack is more powerful, it's just there's so many ways to mess up. Yeah. But it's it's gone okay so far. I think I have 10 matches in. I'm like eight and two or something like that. So it's it's going fine. Well, 80% just, win rate. You hit it here first. Just a casual 80% win rate. I think the deck is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, when I messed up, I messed up really badly. Let's say. Is this what you played on day two? No, I played Auras okay. all the way through that. Okay. Yeah. So you like it? So we just talked about like the top end of the meta. We talked about Sultai. We talked about this deck. We talked about Neoform as kind of like the best of one killer. How do you want to close this out? Well, how do you guys feel about Historic? I mean, I think we, we've been talking about it. We've been playing it a lot. I've got a lot of matches in on it. Um, I I think it's a good, it's a surprisingly good format. Like, it doesn't suck. There's some cards I think are better out, better off out of the format. But, I mean, every format always has those crazy cards that you don't want to see that often. I think it's buoyed by the quality of Arena. I was kind of thinking the same thing in some ways. It, like yeah. you think if we were playing Pioneer, we'd be like even happier or something. I, maybe not Pioneer specifically, but <laughs> yeah. So, so here's Shin. You said something about Sultai that uh, I've been sitting on. Every game feels the same for you, or like a lot of games are very samey. Yeah. And, and maybe that's because like first I played Goblins, then I played Neoform. Before that, I played Mono Blue. Before that, I played Mono Red. But I feel like more often than not, that's the case with a lot of historic decks. I think it's just a lot. Of, I think it's a case with a lot of magic decks. I, that was what I was wondering too, a little bit. Yeah, like that's like the re- that's the reason that they're good, right? Is because you have like many similar effects. You have many cards doing the same kind of thing. You have a lot of you want to create that inevitability. You want to be able to do it reliably, and like that's just what happens, right? But we don't necessarily th- feel that way when we play modern. 
I think a lot of modern decks do feel that way. I mean, I think like there's, there's certain decks that don't like burn feels the same, but humans doesn't because like the way humans interacts with the board or the hand does different things. Right. Like, but prowess feels pretty, you know, similar or to me at least. It was just like, there's different decks. I think that want to do the same thing. Like, you know, control wants to do, wants to keep the board clear. wants to maintain their life total. wants to stick a planeswalker, generate a lot of value out of it, that kind of stuff. And Jun wants to do the strip the hand, remove the things, stick the goif, you know, take over the, you know, the game with that type thing. And I think it's just like, that's what magic is about in a lot of ways. I think there's just decks that make it more palatable for you to do the same thing over and over again versus others. I mean, I, I kind of agree with both of you where it's kind of like, yeah, I'm enjoying it. It's fun. I do think it is a little bit buoyed by the fact that like arena is a pretty whizzy experience. My technical problems in on day two aside, um, it's also a bit easier to just pick up and go like I've talked about a couple of times. And also it's new for me. And so I'm enjoying the, the newness of it. These are cards that I haven't pl- spent a lot of time playing with. And so, um, I know there's a lot of factors to make me feel like I'm pretty positive about historic. I like the fact that it's going backwards and forwards in time at the same time, like you said. Yeah, that's really cool. And that that's not going to last forever. But um, I, th- I think I feel pretty good about it overall. I mean, for as much as everybody's like er- these Uro decks, these Sultai decks are 30% of the meta, 35% of the meta or whatever. It's like it's a drag to play against them. But once you figure out a plan against them, it feels like you can start to increase your win rates some. So I don't feel terrible about it, but um, I enjoy it. I've been enjoying it. I'm still enjoying it. Stan, are you still enjoying it? A couple of weeks ago, you were pretty into it. Oh, oh yeah. I I love it. I mean, I think it helps that I got the shiny new deck that I really like playing. I think... Yeah, that is always fun to get new decks, and we'll run out of that. Yeah, we might, and we don't I mean? have mana traders. So I, I hope we don't hit a, a, a dull brick wall. I think that might be kind of crappy, because in, in theory this could get boring sooner than modern empty Joe can, because there's like a limit to the experiences that you can have on arena or at least until you start playing like arena cube and the weekend only events and historic artisan brawl. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something to be said about ladder. You know what I mean? Like it's not an event. I don't have to spend 500 gold or, you know, a thousand gems, something like that. Like there's literally no investment, but my time and my pride, It's just free real estate. <laughs> yeah. It's funny to me, like shame to admit it, but the pride part is actually like hard for me. So yeah, ladder I, anxiety is real, man. I would rather like mess around in a league for 500 gold and feel like I I'm on it and then go back to the ladder than the other way around. Is this feels versus reels, but I feel like my win rate is better in events than it is on the ladder. Might be. Might be. I definitely feel like I see more bruise in the in the events. Events than I do on yes. the ladder. Yes. Well, historic is fun. Arena is, is maybe more fun. We'll keep Bring modern to arena, do it. Yeah, uh, that's the dream. That's absolutely the dream. I guess we'll keep playing it. thousand dollars. Yeah, right. How am I going to build my deck? I was serious. I'd do it. No question. What should we do next oh, week? Just give me all of modern. Should we just buy three new decks? Yeah, we're going to all buy modern decks next week. Yeah, let's do it. All right. This was fun while it lasted, but that does wrap up this week's show. 
If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, pick our brain on something in modern, historic, heck, pioneer. We still kind of know what's going on over there because nothing is going on over there. You can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. You can support the show by joining our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can also support the show by subscribing to Mana Traders with coupon code the dive down. Get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards with Mana Traders for all you MTGO stands out there. Also go over to untapped.thedivedown.com to download untapped.gg and track your Magic Arena performance on the ladder. You don't even have to pay any money. If you just download that, that software, it supports the dive down. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and make more history. Mm-hmm.